welcome to Autocracy Now. This episode, we're starting a new series. It's going to be about Huey P. Long. Episode 1, The Whirlwind. Imagine for a moment that there was a politician in the United States, very unlike the others. One who was willing to promise all things to all people, who had no qualms about changing his position on an almost daily basis. One who viciously attacked the establishment, one who viciously attacked the establishment, made personal attacks on his opponents, and gave them derogatory nicknames, violating nearly every democratic norm in the book. One who fought against freedom of the press, and constantly denounced the lying newspapers when they reported on the corruption that he was steeped in. A politician who was perfectly happy to tear up the constitution, and anyone who stood in his way, in order to achieve his ends. A demagogue whose rise and rise to power seemed absurd to the establishment, but made sense to the people, many of whom loved him and believed that he was the only one on their side. And, on this wave of popular support and promises, and with complete disregard for the way people thought things should be done, a politician who set himself up as a ruthless, corrupt, kleptocratic dictator. Now imagine that there was a politician in the US who fought against vested interests, big corporations, and argued tirelessly and energetically for the redistribution of the wealth. A politician who was never afraid to speak his mind and to speak truth to power, who had contempt for Washington because it was contemptible. A man of the people who was frustrated with being blocked and slandered at every turn, and the ineffective methods of his fellows at dealing with crisis. A man who subverted a corrupt and contemptible democracy on behalf of the ordinary people. A man who tried to destroy a system that needed destroying, and sought power in order to do the good that he knew other politicians couldn't do. A man with a sense of destiny, who was unfairly slandered and maligned by the vested interests in the wealthy elite that he sought to undermine. A man who built himself up from nothing and became the hero of the common man. He would argue that he was only doing openly what everyone else had done covertly for years. A man who said, A demagogue is someone who doesn't keep his promises to the people, and I kept every one of mine. And many went along with him, and refused to believe any of the attempts to smear him, because they knew he was on their side. Both men existed in the manic, whirlwind frame of Huey P. Long, who cut such a dramatic figure in Louisiana politics, and later national politics, in the 1920s and 30s. The man and the methods make him an irresistible figure for politicised histories. There are always two Hueys, the straight-talking man of the people who sought power to make things better, and the vicious demagogue who exploited lies and popular support to dominate the stage and enrich himself. Now, more than ever, when there seem to be two of every major political figure floating around, depending on your stripes, we should examine such a life. It helps that it's also an incredible story, and Huey himself is as quotable a politician as has ever lived. Huey P. Long was born on August 30th, 1893, in Wynn Parish, Louisiana. Huey himself would have you believe that his family were dirt poor and never had two sticks to rub together. He loved to use his humble origins as a political weapon against his enemies but they were actually fairly well off compared to some in Wynn County. His father at least owned the farm that he worked on. He was never a wealthy man, but they had a house with two floors and electric lights, which put them above a lot of people in the county. The fact remains, though, that Wynn County was one of the most impoverished regions in one of the most impoverished states in the country. The soil was poor, the farmers struggled, and many of them resented the rich elites of the state, who constantly looked down on them with disdain. Wynn County also had a history of stubborn political radicalism. The Socialist Party candidate for president polled a lot of votes there, and Huey's own father had voted for him. During the Civil War, in the deep south state of Louisiana, Wynn County alone had supported the Union. In some ways, they were traditionally contrarians. Wynn folks distrusted the elites in large cities of Louisiana like New Orleans or the state capital of Baton Rouge. Maybe they were desperate enough to be anti-establishment by default, or maybe they knew that no one up there would listen to them anyway. For most people from Wynn, life was a question of survival, not one of ambition. Even in 1930, a fifth of white men in the state couldn't read or write, and amongst black men the statistics were far worse, although less well known. Social mobility was virtually non-existent. You died in the class you were born, and that was the way things went. Huey's remarkable political rise put him in sharp contrast with the US politicians who came from wealth, or else political dynasties like the Roosevelts and the Kennedys. His birth did not necessarily mark him out for great things. But he did have some advantages. His family were not so stricken by poverty that he couldn't go to school. 
and his mother was keen that all the children should have a good education. They had a rule in their household that any kid who was reading a book wouldn't have to do any chores. God, I wish we had that rule in my house, I never would have done anything at all. And Huey took advantage, and quickly read widely and deeply. Meanwhile, in the rest of the state, books were a rarity, and the town of Wynne had no public library. Most people, if they owned anything, owned the Bible, and that was it. It's really tempting to read a lot into the childhood reading habits of figures like Huey, to get insights into early influences on their psychology, because after all it does shape you. You know, if I hadn't read so many dystopian sci-fi books while I was growing up, I'd probably be happily frolicking in the field somewhere, rather than recording a podcast about dictators. Did exposure to Shakespeare give Huey a taste of drama? Did the Count of Monte Cristo teach him about the value of crushing his enemies? Huey himself would describe Wynne as his greatest influence. One of the great things about Huey Long is that we have autobiographies that he wrote in his own words. So his autobiography is very self-serving and quite unreliable, but I'm going to quote from it a lot because it's a good source. He wrote, quote, My sympathies were with those whose fight for subsistence was living from hand to mouth, of which there seemed to be more than a few among the people I knew. Our community was a kindly one. No one went hungry or in need of clothes if anyone in the neighbourhood had anything to spare. End quote. Huey's willingness to manipulate his own past for political ends means that we have to take everything he says with a grain of salt. He was a master of self-image, but more than just creating one Huey P. Long story that people might believe in or respect, he was brilliant at tailoring how he behaved to the situation and to the people he was with. There's a classic anecdote illustrating this that all the books quote. The first time Huey campaigned in the south of Louisiana, his local boss warned him that there were a lot of Catholic voters, and that Huey, who was from the Protestant north of the state, should take care to appeal to the Catholics. Huey started beginning all his speeches with some homespun charm. Quote, When I was a boy, I got up at six o'clock in the morning on Sunday, I hitched the up the old horse to the buggy, and I took my Catholic grandparents to Mass. Then I brought them home, and later that day, I'd hitch the old horse up again and take my Baptist grandparents to church. The leader was thrilled with the positive effect this had on the audiences. Here was a man who could unite communities in the state. He said, Huey, I didn't know you had any Catholic grandparents. Don't be a damned fool, Huey replied. We didn't even have a horse. Huey paid fast and loose with the truth consistently, but people loved him for it. As well as romanticising Wynn County as a place where people would share their wealth, including the Long family, Huey described several instances of injustice that he saw as a child, including a farmer being forced off his land by an unfair auction. The political language of Louisiana at the time is filled with so much apocrypha and so many colourful wives' tales and parables, it's hard to take any specific story seriously, but it's not so hard to believe that the inequality and desperate poverty that Huey saw growing up, as much as anything else, is what drove him into politics, even if it was just a means of personal escape from that poverty. The thing is, there are lots of people who claim to be representing the little man, and yet have never had experience of that. But Huey, more than most politicians, could claim that he did indeed know what it was like to be poor. As well as having a fierce intellectual streak, the young Huey was a whirlwind from the start. He was brash and filled up every room he was in. Everyone in town knew him. He was perfectly happy challenging authority. Bored with the seventh grade, he promoted himself to the eighth. Maybe as you'd expect from someone with so many siblings, he loved being the centre of attention. Either you let him pitch, or he didn't play, a school friend commented. He smoked and chewed tobacco, which he managed to keep a secret from his parents, and was even involved in a bare-knuckle boxing contest over a young girl's affections when he was fifteen. In the end, the girl ditched both him and his rival, so they'd fought for nothing, but good for her. But unlike his brother Earl, he didn't revel in violence. He'd say... Why should anyone be fool enough to fight when he can get what he wants without doing it? Huey fought with words. Once he burst in on a school debate and delivered an impassioned speech. Even at this early age, the trademark Huey Long delivery was being developed. Arms flailing, wildly denouncing people and things he saw as unfair, with all that hint of homespun charm. He wasn't even supposed to be there, and he walked away with a debate prize. That's Huey Long. Yet, despite being razor-smart, and something of a smart aleck, he didn't finish high school. Accounts differ as to why, but it seems like Huey had a falling out with the principal. Either the principal insisted that everyone take an extra year of high school to graduate, which Huey objected to, or something more sinister and political was going on. 
The version that Huey tells is this. In the school, he'd established a secret society. We laid out the rules for the kids to follow, and if they went with the teachers instead of us, we'd keep them off the baseball team, the debating team. I was one of the ones that the teachers had it in for. I published a newspaper that attacked them, so they had me expelled. This story so perfectly mimics Huey's later political career that I really want it to be true. The idea that in high school, he was already developing his own political machine is a perfect historical illustration. After all, making a network that controlled prize positions on sports and debating teams, and using them as leverage over people to control them and defy authority, while also publishing newspapers that slandered his foes. This is Huey's whole career in microcosm. Did he really develop it at school, or is this all part of the long legend? It's hard to say. Certainly, he was ambitious and bold enough to do something like this, and he circulated a petition in the town to get the principal fired. It's on record that the principal left the school later that year. Whether he was ousted by Huey's schoolyard mafia and scandal rags, we'll probably never know. Even if this particular story is exaggerated, it's clear that the high schools had no idea what to do with Huey. He was miles ahead of his classmates, many of whom were struggling to learn how to read or write. It doesn't stretch the imagination too much that he got bored, like a lot of smart kids do, and held the authorities in contempt. He wouldn't be the first bright young kid to decide that he was smarter than his teachers, as well as all the other kids. Chances are, though, by the time he was 15, Huey already knew how he wanted his life to pan out. He had no desire to work on his father's farm, preferring to read than to plough a furrow. Although, of course, that's not how Huey tells it. In his autobiography, he describes toiling from dawn until dusk and saying, My sympathy goes out to all those who toil. Maybe it did, but he hardly worked as a farmhand for long. He'd learned to type, which was unusual in Wynn, and had worked at newspapers as a teenager, typesetting stories for them. But he didn't want to be a journalist or an academic either. Whether or not he constructed a political machine in his high school while he was still in short trousers, the young Huey loved politics. But politics in Louisiana was no place for starry-eyed idealists. It was a game you played. Most of the practices today we'd think are hopelessly corrupt. You built a network of supporters, associates, and voters with patronage. Offering people cushy government jobs was the way you got them on side and controlled their votes, and so you got elected to office. Louisiana was a one-party state. Only the Democratic Party ever got voted into anything. So the primary elections where the Democrats nominated their candidate for a political office were the only ones that really mattered in the state. To win these, you'd probably need the support of one of the political machines that was being operated in the state. These organisations, although shady, were well known to everyone. There were the old regulars and the new regulars in New Orleans. These political machines ran things in a way that was often corrupt and incompetent, but they knew their status. They were the power brokers that controlled the fate of the state. The old regulars, sometimes called the Choctaws, between them they controlled 35,000 votes in the city. But they didn't just rely on this to swing elections. They had control over the voter registrars. It was perfectly common for dead people, imaginary people, and even famous figures like Charlie Chaplin to vote in Louisiana elections and they always seemed to prefer the old regulars' favourite candidates. It worked, too. Between 1920 and 24, every governor of Louisiana was backed by the old regulars. These groups maintained power by controlling vice. They'd raid gamblers and prostitution houses while tacitly allowing some of them to go ahead. So many gambling houses and brothels were like sponges, wrung out to dry once they'd soaked up all of the illicit trade and money in the region. Outside of New Orleans, there were local political bosses and wealthy plantation owners who controlled their own blocks of votes and would happily give them to you for a price. In some ways, it was like the Roman Republican system, where wealthy men controlled the way their clients voted in exchange for money and favours. The one thing that all of these groups had in common was a sense of internal loyalty and justice. Honour amongst thieves, you might call it. You richly rewarded your friends and supporters, and you neglected and spurned your political enemies. Louisiana politics had plenty of demagogues. These were cut-price Huey Longs, but they usually rabble-roused the crowds by bringing up glorious episodes in Confederate history. The people of the state were not over the Civil War, and race-baiting in a state where black people were horribly disenfranchised was also a common political tactic. Nor were the politicians of Louisiana afraid to attack each other with flowery and colourful language. When one of his opponents called Huey, quote, 
a coward with the conduct of an egg-sucking yellow dog, and a man who lies with a craven heart like a white-livered popinjay. The polysyllabic spree was very familiar to the people listening. Huey, of course, gave as good as he got and more, but that's for later. Huey's first exposure to politics was supporting his brother Julius's favourite candidate in a local election in Louisiana. I didn't even know what politics was, but as soon as I saw it, I was in it, Huey later said. He was put in charge of the votes for a local parish, and Julius's candidate won by a healthy margin. Later, Huey, still in school, was put up as a candidate to debate the Socialist Party opposition. Huey attacked both the hypocrisy of big business and the failures of socialism, managing to walk a fine line, still being popular and on the side of the little man, but anti-socialist, in win, which had proved itself to be sympathetic to socialism before, like I said. He won the debate, passionately arguing on behalf of the small business capitalism that the farmers in Louisiana represented. A biographer describes the episode. Huey Long believed in the things he said. He would always believe in them, and he never ceased his efforts to lift the small and poor to a better life. Despite debating socialist politicians in public at the age of just 15, Huey couldn't run for office straight away. He took several jobs after leaving high school as a travelling salesman, and he found it well suited to his ability to persuade people and get them on side, with his oratory, rhetoric and homespun charm. In his autobiography, he said that he found the work all too easy. There's a great story of Huey selling an old man a second-hand coffin, quoting Bible scripture, showering the guy in a huge list of arguments. Only after the man became insistent that he must have his coffin right away did Huey have to reveal that he didn't actually have one. His first day on his first salesman job, he sold twice as many products as the experienced old hands on the team, whirlwinding his way into the hearts and minds of local residents and flogging whatever the company had for him to sell. Huey was a memorable figure, and you suspect that a lot of the people he charmed in his salesman days might have remembered and voted for him later on in life, their own little piece of political history. But he was also very astute at reading people, and understanding which lines of argument would persuade them best. Was the customer concerned with economy, or the quality of the product, or something with new features? Sometimes he'd even cook dinner for the families with the cooking oil he was selling, to demonstrate its superiority. Imagining this kid, straight out of high school, leaving the housewives of Louisiana dazed and handing over their money, wearing his overly big suit and tie, after a whirlwind assault of words and charm. The actual product was not important. Huey didn't care about the product. It was all about the salesmanship, he felt. He prided himself on his powers of persuasion. At one point, he even sold what's called snake oil medicines, you know, medicines that didn't work, including several that were denounced as actively harmful. There was one, wine of cardwee, that was supposed to alleviate cramps. It might have distracted you from the cramps, given that its main ingredient was raw alcohol. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Huey sold it by the bucket load, and I'm sure a lot of people would politically argue that selling snake oil and fake medicine is a good microcosm of how his career would go later on. He relates a wonderful, although probably exaggerated, story of the poverty of his early years in his autobiography. He got a new job in a town, Norman, near the university so that he could study and work at the same time. Huey? Quote, I gladly took the job, but how was I to get to Norman? Snow and sleet covered the ground, the wind was cold and cutting. I surveyed my belongings. I had exactly three nickels. I pondered whether I should ride the first nine miles for 15 cents, or walk all 18 and have the money. I took the course of walking the entire distance. According to Huey, he walked all night, only to find that he still needed 25 cents to make a telephone call to his new boss. He pawned his wallet, which was empty anyway, but it still wasn't enough to get by. His last hope was to charm a bank manager into giving him a loan. It was denied. Huey said, at least the banker wasn't crazy. But on his way out, he made a new friend and benefactor. He said to the man, The chances are whatever you hand me will be a gift, but if I can make it here, I can do it on five dollars. The man gave him the money, and Huey was saved from utter destitution. In Huey's version, he starts out depending entirely on the kindness and generosity of strangers to get by and get into law school. In reality, he probably borrowed some money from the members of his family too. He says that the incident made him determined to give what little he had to the less fortunate, wherever he could. The reality of his life does not always follow this path. Huey spent the next couple of years alternating between occasional studies in law at universities and law schools, his salesman jobs, 
and occasionally smoking, drinking, and gambling with his local friends. At one point, he lost all of the money he had on a single spin of the roulette wheel. His older brother, Julius, had paid for his tuition in part by being good with cards, but Huey, games of chance didn't work out so well for him. Huey never took to the courses seriously, and he left with no college qualifications and mediocre grades, but he had all the books he needed, and learned voraciously the aspects of the law that were most interesting to him. Huey would read until midnight every night, drink half a gallon of beer, and go to sleep. His academic grades were no indication of a lack of effort. T. Harry Williams says in his excellent biography that they were pretty good for someone who studied law in spare moments between the twin careers in selling and gambling. Huey's whirlwind carried him into the law with the same irrepressible energy he brought to every endeavour whether it was dominating the schoolyard or being a sweet-talking salesman. It was around this time, 1912-1913, that Huey met Rose McConnell, who he described as the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. She had a personality almost opposite to Huey's in many respects. She was shy, generous, caring, not especially manic, but he eventually managed to persuade her to marry him over the course of the next two years, after several failed proposals. One of a hundred dramatic incidences involves Rose being Huey's alibi. The night they went to the opera, he was wrongly accused of shooting at a man in the street. Rose often doubted that he was making enough money to support them both, and her family disapproved of him. This meant that their courtship was tempestuous, although Huey glosses over that. At one point, Huey even asked for his engagement ring back. But now that he had the beginnings of a family to support, Huey needed to move on from the life of a travelling salesman, and ramped up his law school studies. Huey claimed to study 16 or 20 hours a day, and hounded his professors and teachers for all the information they could provide. With no hope of sticking around long enough to get a law degree, his only chance was to cram, 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 and pass the Louisiana Oral Bar Exam. Again, to hear Huey tell it, he dramatically runs out of money just a month before the exam dates, and has to apply for a special dispensation from the local judge to let him take the exam early. Of course, he passes with flying colours, and at the age of 21, the newly married Huey is a qualified lawyer in Louisiana. Not that he wanted to stay, even in the law. It was just a springboard for a political career, and Rose knew this. Huey said of himself, I was born into politics, a wedded man with a storm for a bride. Soon after they married, he told her his life plan. Maybe he'd worked it out when he was walking, penniless, at night, by the railroad tracks. Or maybe he had had it since that first taste of politics when he was 15 years old, or even earlier. But he told his new wife, quite seriously, with a straight face, that he planned to win some minor local office, then become governor, then US senator for Louisiana, and from there, finally, become the president of the United States. This was Huey's ultimate goal. He didn't aim low. Anything else, dabbling in the law, travelling sales, these were just ways to make money to reach that ultimate goal. It almost gave you cold chills to hear him tell about it, Rose later said. He was measuring it all. Despite his plans, Huey's career in the law hardly got off to a flying start. He fell out with his older brother and mentor Julius, and he was struggling to make ends meet in a tiny backroom office. He was forced to seek out employment as a salesman again. Whatever few clients they got, Huey dealt with on the road while selling products. Eventually, though, things began to pick up. The first case he got of any note was an ideal case for the aspiring politician. A widow had left her entire life savings in the bank of Winfield. A member of the bank had taken the money for his own use, and, leaving a note with a promise to pay, had fled the state. The widow wanted to sue the bank and get her life savings back. Huey eagerly took on the case, but the bank insisted that the people who were suing would have to pay for the legal costs of the case until they won. Huey needed $100 for that that he didn't have. He had to appeal to the state senator for a loan and whipped up public sentiment against the bank for their unfair rules that would have denied the widow her day in court. Huey won the case, which was ideal for him, and started to make his name as the defender of the little guy against greedy big business. He fought countless cases like this, in which he details in his autobiography. He always preferred to be on the side of the humble, wronged client against the big corporate interest. Huey loved appealing to the people, championing his pet causes, and outmanoeuvring the slick city lawyers. 
Now, it's perfectly possible at this point that he could have pursued a lucrative law career, either continuing to fight cases like this, or working for one of the big corporations, selling out. They were forced to recognise his talent eventually. It's clear that he had the skill and energy to become one of the finest lawyers of his generation. He could have earned more money working for the corporations, but Huey knew that the cases he were fighting were of more than pure financial value. Every one of them made his local legend grow, and became a political anecdote that he could use in the future. His autobiography is littered with examples of helping the little guy. And Huey knew that he needed to fulfil one step of his master plan, and run for public office. Or, alternatively, if you're a Huey Long supporter, he knew that he was doing the right thing. He chose a field that wasn't particularly sexy or necessarily that interesting. He might have expected brash young Huey to run for mayor, or something along those lines, that would give him a taste of authority. But instead, he went for a position on the Railroad Commission, getting elected in 1918. Huey's first political campaign already had the hallmarks of later ones. He tirelessly went from small town to small town, speaking on platforms in the squares and making long lists of the people he'd spoken to and met, so that he could write to them personally to ask for their votes. He bypassed the bigger towns. There, the incumbent that he was running against was well-connected politically, so Huey stuck to the rural heartlands. He liked going to places where no other political candidate had ever been, where his speeches would draw big crowds from the sheer novelty of meeting a politician. Through sheer force of will, and with support from a growing circle of political allies, Huey won easily. So the position of railroad commissioner was pretty administrative, but there was a degree of calculation Other men had used this office as a stepping stone towards becoming governor. Huey himself said he liked the fact that there was no minimum age. He was just 24. In this, he reveals a degree of shrewdness, because the commission had quite wide regulatory powers that he could use to attack corporate interests. Huey brought a level of whirlwind activity to the railroad commission that it wasn't used to. These positions were just like the ones that were typically doled out by the political machines like the old regulars to reward their supporters. The other men on the commission were middle-aged career politicians who had been there for decades. If they had agendas, aside from just continually drawing their salary, they were slow to pursue them. Specifically, the position allowed him to kick off a vendetta against the big oil company that dominated Louisiana, Standard Oil. When Huey denounced the legislature in the state as being bought and sold by Standard Oil, he had a point. A lot of them were in the company's pocket. His battle with the crack team of Standard Oil lawyers trying to bring the company under new regulations in Louisiana would carry on for four years. At the same time, he was starting to lay out his political platform. In 1918, he had a letter published in the newspapers. Quote, A conservative estimate is that 65-70% to of the wealth of the nation is owned by 2% of the population. 68% of the people own just 2% of the wealth. From 1890 to 1910, the wealth of the nation trebled, but the masses owned less in 1910 than they did in 1890. 80 out of 100 never enter high school, and only 14 in 1,000 get a college education. What do you think of such a game of life, so brutally and cruelly unfair? with the dice so loaded that a child of today has only 14 chances of a thousand in securing the first part of the game. This is the kind of rhetoric you'll still hear today. It's still true today, it's still persuasive today, and it can still fill you with rage to think about it today. Huey may have been willing to manipulate people to fulfil his own ambition, but it can't be denied there was a cause worth fighting. The question is whether he was fighting the cause or exploiting it. In 1920, Huey won a big case against a bank. His fee may have been as much as $80,000, which was huge at the time. His money worries were over. From that point on, his career in the law was secondary to his political career, and he continued to rail against Standard Oil in flamboyant public speeches. He denounced them as an octopus containing some of the most notorious and corrupt criminals in these United States. He'd even criticised the governor directly. Arms flailing, face red, Huey livened up every political meeting he spoke at, and people were starting to listen. Everyone who met him realised that they were dealing with a uniquely talented and charismatic individual, even if they vehemently hated the things he said. In many ways, Huey relished being disliked and being the outsider. In 1920, he supported John Parker for governor, but soon he broke with Parker. 
Parker had some pro-reform tendencies. At least he realised that something desperately needed to be done to alleviate poverty in Louisiana. But he had two major flaws. The first was that, without his own political machine, he was vulnerable to the whims of the old regulars in New Orleans, who constantly worked against him. The second was that Parker was an aristocrat, and would risk upsetting his associates and friends with any platform that was too radical. When Huey decided to turn on Parker, he denounced him in a stinging set of circular letters. Huey said that Parker was a slave to the invisible empire of Standard Oil and the big corporations, including the Cumberland Telephone Company. He said that these corporations completely controlled the state and bribed legislators. Huey attacked the other two men who shared his public office in the Railroads Commission, and ended up being sued for libel. Parker, outraged that his former supporter had turned on him, said confidently, If what Huey says is true, I should not be governor, but if it's false, he should go to prison. Huey technically lost the libel case that followed, but he ended up having to pay a fee of just one dollar. The governor's case wasn't strong enough for them to risk a proper punishment, which might end up being overturned. And of course, in classic, dramatic, Huey Long fashion, he flamboyantly walked out of the courthouse after loudly refusing to pay the dollar. Huey was gaining in notoriety as a man who could get things done, and having already offended the big corporations and conservatives in Louisiana, he became the go-to guy for the people who had grievances with corporations. The newspapers regularly reported the exploits of this local hero, winning victories for the people. Many of the articles were written and submitted by Huey himself, along with gifts. His biggest case against the Cumberland Telephone Company ended up winning refunds for 80,000 people, and you can bet a good chunk of those people would remember who'd been responsible. It was a perfect case for Huey. If not, he would always be there to remind them, in speeches, letters and articles. My point in dwelling on all this is that Huey was a populist, but his promises weren't always as empty as his opponents claimed. There are countless incidents where he genuinely did help people, and bypassed the corruption or inertia of the bureaucracy to do so. His manic energy that went into all of his political campaigns could also be used for good. But everything was done for a price. The expectation of loyalty, of publicity, of votes. Huey was very carefully tailoring his public image, there was a huge element of gamble to the way that Huey was planning to win public office. After all, going after the big corporations and the political machines alienated a lot of people in power who could be useful allies. But Huey didn't want to be subservient to anyone else, even if being subservient might mean that his rise was more secure. He calculated that he could pull this win off by railing against almost everyone in authority, appealing to the little people. He had his sights already, always, on the next rung on the ladder. Soon enough, he would make his move. Thanks for listening to Autocracy Now. You can email us, autocracynowoutlook.com, follow us on Twitter at Autocracy Now, like our page on Facebook. Please leave a rating, review on iTunes, your favourite podcatcher, tell your friends. That way, I don't have to hand out embarrassing amateur-made t-shirts. Tell your enemies, too. Next time... Huey will make his move and run for governor of the state of Louisiana. Until then, be kind to each other. Our theme music is The Spirit of Russian Love by Zenadia Trokai, and you can find her stuff at costat.bandcamp.com. That's K-O-S-T-A dot I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Welcome to Autocracy Now. This episode is episode 2 in our series on Huey P. Long, The Campaign Trail. Huey Long pulled a man aside once and conspiratorially explained his plans for 1924. He said, quote, I'm going to run for governor, and let me tell you how I'm going to win. In every parish there's a boss, usually the sheriff. 
he has 40% of the votes. Now 40% are opposed to him. The other 20% are in-betweens. I'm going to go into every parish and cuss out the boss. That gives me 40% of the votes, and I'll horse-trade them out of the in-betweens. In Huey's eyes, he had it all figured out. Of course, you can argue that cussing out the authority figures in every local parish is going to make you a lot of enemies. And, in a state where the police forces regularly help their citizens vote for the right candidates, it seems like a risky strategy. But in many ways, Huey didn't have a choice. As early as his first run in 1924, he was already committed to a brand of insurrectionary, revolutionary politics. His response to any criticism from the establishment was to double down, rail against them, imply that they were in the pay of big corporations and not on the side of the people. Dissatisfaction with the powers that be and with the status quo in Louisiana. Well, this was Huey's bread and butter. He'd yelled about the standard oil criminals, the octopus. Well, if every local sheriff is a tentacle on that octopus, Huey was their sworn enemy. Huey already knew that he wasn't going to secure the endorsements of the political machines, like the old regulars or new regulars in Louisiana. He was far too radical. He was far too radical and nowhere near the kind of compliant kind of candidate they'd normally back. Without their support, his only hope was to subvert the entire political system as it existed in Louisiana. And if that meant denouncing a lot of people, well, what did it matter? In Huey's mind, they stood between him and power. They were already his enemies, and by extension, the enemies of the people. He had some justification for portraying himself as something different, a real alternative to the establishment. Huey's position as public service commissioner on the railroads, fighting legal cases for the little guy, had made his reputation. A local reporter described how the people felt about Huey Long in 1921. They don't know Huey Long. They never saw him, and they would not know him if he stepped off their train at the station. But they know him in name, and you can't make them believe that he's not their defender. Huey was constantly complaining about the biased newspapers, who, in his mind, never gave him his due. In his autobiography, he makes a point of quoting every editorial from the Louisiana press that was pro-long in the early 1920s. And... Tellingly, the last one is a grudging admission that Huey had been responsible for winning the telephone case, the case that had resulted in $400,000 more in the pockets of the people. It's as if Huey is saying, even the crooked media who are in the pay of big corporations have to tell the truth. I'm on your side. These editorials, along with a whole set of circulars, they were distributed by Huey to thousands of homes in Louisiana. And when the press didn't back him, he'd print his own editorials and send those around. But Huey had issues beyond the fact that the press didn't like him. Without political machine backing, he couldn't do the usual thing in Louisiana. The usual procedure was that you offer an entire ticket of candidates. They're all associated with you, and they're all backed by the old regulars or the new regulars. But Huey's campaign for governor was isolated, lacking in political support. And without the systematic structure of machine politics, where the whole slates of candidates would run together and endorse each other, he was struggling. In fact, the other candidates coordinated their efforts against him. With barely disguised bitterness, he recounts one occasion where two rival candidates made a last-minute excuses to avoid a public debate. He even boasts about the crowd size at that debate. Huey had written a speech with one of his classic, elaborate metaphors. He was going to describe the two candidates as eggs laid by the crooked governor, John M. Parker. But as he wryly noted, on an empty stage, this denunciation had less of a dramatic impact than he might have wanted. More of a concern was an issue on which Huey felt he couldn't come down strongly on one side or the other. The Ku Klux Klan, the white supremacist racist organisation, well they were still alive and kicking in Louisiana in the 1920s, and they divided opinion in the state. Some legislative efforts were put in place to forcibly unmask them after they'd begun killing and lynching their political opponents. Now Huey had a problem. He was from the north of Louisiana where the KKK had a lot of support. If he denounced them, he'd lose his natural geographic base. If he came down in favour of them, he would lose the southern votes that he needed to win the election. Also, going on record as endorsing the KKK would probably harm his future political career. You have to remember that Huey was planning to run for president, and having such a backward organisation would not exactly make him a national candidate. As well as this, a lot of KKK supporters represented the vested interests and the wealthy in Louisiana society, and so they already distrusted Huey for his populist radicalism. So, endorsing the KKK wouldn't necessarily help him either. In the meantime, his rival candidates had clear positions on the issue. But whenever Huey was asked about his views, he was in this considerable bind. 
so he dodged the question in the time-honoured manner of politicians who've been cornered. One of his rivals was vehemently anti-clan, and the other was a moderate, who probably hoped to get the clan vote by failing to denounce them. Huey was forced to deny being a member of the clan after rumours spread in the press. It seems clear that the other candidates wanted to use the KKK as a wedge to galvanise support for them, and with Huey's ambivalence on the issue, he was outflanked on both sides. Huey described the injection of the KKK issue into the campaign of 1924. He said, quote, The state, aroused and divided by bitter religious conflict, cleverly manipulated by the corporations and the newspapers, left me out of the running in many places. Now, in terms of Huey's own racism, this is a difficult question. I feel like, essentially, he was perfectly willing to be racist and use racist rhetoric when it won him support, and he was perfectly willing not to when it didn't win him support. Ultimately, the concerns of the oppression of black people were not really his main concern. It was all for him about getting into power. But he wasn't a virulent racist in the way that some of the politicians of the day were. By our standards, he would be considered a racist without doubt but for the time, he was something of a moderate for Louisiana. Another issue was the classic one for outsider candidates, campaign funding. Running a campaign for the governorship was not cheap, especially if you wanted to do as much travelling and public speaking as Huey did. Having irritated all the major corporate backers, and without campaign contributions from political machines, Huey had the smallest campaign war chest of the three candidates by a long way. Instead, he relied on his own personal magnetism and restless energy, in a typical 20-hour day, Huey would speak in several towns, shake hundreds of hands, and cross many miles. He was also aware of the possibilities offered to him by new media. This would allow him to bypass the traditional gatekeepers of the press, who were in his view unforgivably biased. In Louisiana in the 1920s, the new medium was the radio. Huey was one of the first Louisiana politicians to use it to his advantage, broadcasting mainly to New Orleans. His strategy in these speeches, along with advancing his populist programme and promoting infrastructure, was to attack viciously every single one of his opponents. By this strategy of relentless offensive, Huey covered up for a lack of his own coherent political programme, and forced the focus of the debate endlessly back onto himself. But all the new media, free publicity and whirlwind activism in the world couldn't overcome the institutional barriers against Huey in 1924. And, if you're willing to believe in the pathetic fallacy, maybe something more. On election day and the night before, there was heavy rain, and some rural voters couldn't get to the polls as a result. The dirt roads, the roads that Huey had promised to rebuild in concrete, had washed away to mud. In the end, Huey lost the election. The rain probably didn't make a decisive difference, but he would elevate it in his autobiography, arguing that 40% of his rural vote had been lost to the downpour. The words of a man cleverly manipulating history, or one who can't face defeat. It was another hard luck story for the man who'd walked all night beside the railroad tracks to become a clerk. Now, this is pretty ridiculous, because the voter turnout in the rural regions that Huey was concerned with was much higher than normal. But in his defeat, there were the seeds of future victory. The newspapers had confidently predicted that a radical candidate like Huey could never get more than 25,000 votes. But in the end, he polled 74,000. Not all that far behind the leading candidate with 84,000. But more than this, it was the source of Huey's votes that represented the shock to the political system. He'd done this, he'd come a very creditable third, with no support from New Orleans and no political machine on his side. Those votes came from the very rural poor that Huey had spent so long canvassing and trying to shape into a real political force. Vast swathes of the state were prolonged in terms of territory. If you counted it by parish... Huey had a majority in as many parishes as the victor. Huey blamed the rain for his defeat, and swore that the fight was only just beginning. But the failed campaign had taught him some vital lessons. First, it was possible to galvanise the rural poor of Louisiana to vote for him. They had already surprised all the pundits in their strong turnout. They were no fickle voter base who could be bought and sold by political machines. It was the way that Huey had made a name for himself, both in the law representing the little guy and in these freewheeling political rallies that visited towns that other candidates had shunned and never been to before. These people had been brought into political participation by him, and they would surely remain loyal to him. But Huey learned secondly, if he was going to win decisively, he would need to get some votes from New Orleans. Huey visited the city and met with several people, including Robert Ewing, who published an influential New Orleans newspaper. 
Ewing probably thought that he could influence a young and naive Huey, and like many others, he was enticed by this base of popular support that he'd managed to tap into. So Huey threw himself into the shifting alliances and murky allegiances of New Orleans politics. He attempted to intervene in a local race there. He curried favour with the new regular political faction. Huey promised that, if he was elected governor, the new regular cronies would all be given cushy government jobs. He was not above the slick game-playing of politics in Louisiana, with its heel turns and its backroom deals. It's just that, as soon as he was elected, he planned to throw the chessboard out of the window. In the four years between 1924 and 1928, Huey's efforts were concentrated in two parallel political projects, entering the fray of New Orleans backroom politics with his association with Ewing, and continuing to build his populist reputation with his railroad commissioner position and his legal career. Louisiana politics had something of the professional wrestling sense of drama to it. Political alliances were made to be broken as much as they were made for anything else. For this reason, Huey supported at first the Senate candidature of Joseph Rancel. There were few politicians further from Huey's own kind. Rancel's career had followed a classic trajectory. He studied law, he became a congressman for 12 years, and then a senator for another 12 years. The classic establishment candidate. By the time Huey lost his first race in 1924, he'd been in Congress or the Senate for 24 years. But Rancel was a Catholic, and Huey needed Catholic votes from the south of Louisiana, who still mistrusted him and his rumoured association with the KKK. So everything he did in these years, it was with an eye to the specific demographics of Louisiana, and how he could win. Huey spent some time in his speeches of 1925 praising the establishment candidate, the extremely conservative Ranzel, sometimes more than he praised himself. Huey hoped that Ranzel would remember the favour and return it in 1928, so that he'd have an establishment voice on his side when he tried again to run for governor. Huey needed support in the Catholic South to win the election, and one of the quirky traditions of Louisiana politics helped him in the same. There was this system of patronage that really, really reminds you of the Roman Republican system. So it was the tradition that the rich men of the parishes led the poor towards voting, in a sort of patron-client model. In the Roman system, many of the city's poor made their living purely from handouts from the rich, it was a sign of social status to be an upstanding man about town, and support the poor and needy while maintaining your own obscene wealth. And in exchange, you could rely on their social support and their political support. They would vote the way you told them to. Many of these rich big dogs supported Huey because he was so popular amongst their young clients. And as his exploits gained more and more attention, some of them started to drift to his side. A major case that's worth talking about in the intervening years was the case of the New Orleans Tollbridge, Huey's autobiography, which we've already said, spins everything wonderfully. In it, he says he's ready and willing to settle down and pursue no further political ambitions after his first defeat as governor. Yeah, right. He describes how happy and contented he is with his wife and young family, fighting his noble legal cases and making a decent living. Then the next chapter is titled, The Tollbridge Outrage. New Orleans needed bridges to connect it to the growing network of roads in the state, and there was bitter debate over whether this should be a free bridge paid for by government money, or a toll bridge that would be funded by the users. J.Y. Sanders, one of Huey's political opponents and a friend of the current governor, proposed a plan for the toll bridge, and Huey leapt on the opportunity to attack a political rival. Huey could not disguise his insurgent brand of politics. He couldn't pretend to be a member of the establishment, and he knew that he could hardly rely on political alliances, which shifted with the wind. He had to completely discredit the establishment, so, with wild allegations that the toll bridge was a corrupt project to personally benefit Sanders and his political allies, he hoped to draw a line between himself and the traditional politicians in the minds of the people. Harry Williams, in his great biography of Huey, describes a familiar political scene. Quote, Sanders observed the mounting barrage of charges, at first with anger and then with resignation. He attempted to deny them and was able to demonstrate that some of them were inaccurate. But he soon discovered that denials were fruitless, his factual rejoinders were not nearly as interesting to voters as Huey's lurid allegations. Moreover, by the time he nailed one story as false, Huey stated another one that needed to be met. Sanders was being placed in a position that to a politician is fatal. He was always on the defensive, always responding to moves of his opponent and never moving on his own. Quote. Huey sued the state and denounced the plan, 
proposing his own alternative free bridge. Go build that bridge, and before you finish it, I will be elected governor, and I will have free bridges right beside it, Huey bragged. The bridge issue was perfect for him. Infrastructure projects were already on his political agenda, as a wise populist move, and this gave him his chance to lobby votes for New Orleans citizens who didn't want to pay a toll, and it let him paint his opponents as corrupt, crony capitalists, willing to sell the people down the river, or at least make them pay to cross the river. Huey, in his autobiography, describes, It was practically impossible for me not to be moved into the sea of this fight. And so, despite his best efforts to be rid of politics, he found himself reluctantly campaigning for governor again in 1928. The political establishment was under no illusions that they would have to unite to defeat him. In July of 1927, three former governors, Ruffin Pleasant, John Parker, and Sanders, staged a meeting. Also attending, as Huey gleefully reports, were members of Standard Oil's Octopus and representatives of New Orleans' political machines. There was one item on the agenda at this meeting. Pick a candidate who could defeat Huey Long. They made no bones about attacking him during the meeting. Pleasant called him a coward with the conduct of an egg-sucking yellow dog and a man who lies with a craven heart like a white-livered popinjay. Other attendees compared him to a Bolshevik, just ten years before, socialism had taken over the Russian Empire. It was a considerable threat. Huey was perfectly willing to denounce the conference right back, saying that it was a stench in the nostrils of good people, a candidate handpicked by a set of plunderbunders. Not that the elite had many outstanding candidates to choose from. The incumbent governor was an alcoholic who gambled prolifically when he wasn't making dull, uninspiring speeches. He wasn't even elected, but had assumed the governorship when the previous governor died. The incumbent governor would also run his race, splitting the establishment vote. In the end, the gathering settled on Riley Joe Wilson, a 14-year congressman from Huey's own Wynn Parish. Riley Joe had an advantage. He was in charge of flood control in the House of Representatives, and Louisiana had just had a massive flood in 1927, so his key issue was fresh in people's minds. But Riley Joe was no Huey P. Long. Despite similar origins, he didn't have the same homespun charm. He didn't have the outrageous platform of promises, or the track record of helping the little guy. He could rely on backing from the political machines, and from conservatives who opposed Huey bitterly. But there was little natural enthusiasm for Riley Joe as a candidate, save for the fact that he wasn't long. At that meeting, with thousands of delegates chanting, It won't be long now! You can already see that the opposition forces were running scared. They might have looked at the cheering crowds and seen a victory margin, but across the state many voters were disgusted with how openly the machine had played their hand. The rich and powerful in Louisiana had got together and selected a candidate to defeat Huey. It played into his narrative perfectly. Look at these people trying to buy the election from you, the people. When Huey was asked for his reaction to the convention, he said, That was a great convention. Give them rope. Huey was more than 20 years younger than his opponents. They were completely part of the establishment. Louisiana was a one-party state, but it was distinctly beginning to divide into two camps, pro-establishment and anti-establishment, pro-long and anti-long. Faced with a candidate he felt he could defeat, Huey went into overdrive, touring the little villages and towns of Louisiana. Whatever Riley Joe promised, Huey would outpromise. Whenever Riley Joe attacked his character, Huey came back with extra viciousness. In classic, four Yorkshiremen style, the two men even competed over who had been the most impoverished. When Riley Joe talked about going barefoot as a child in Wynn Parish, Huey snapped back, I can go on better, I was born barefoot. But Huey's campaign was not purely reactive. He had key issues, key policies that people recognised. Free school books for every child, a free bridge, improved roads, improved infrastructure, improved state hospitals, vocational education for the disabled, and funding for the education of poor, gifted children. It was an endless list, a litany, of utopian populist promises. The free school books were a particularly favourite issue. School textbooks were something of a racket in Louisiana. The approved textbooks regularly got changed, parents would have to buy them for their own children, and this cost up to $5 a year, which could practically price some people out of the educational market. Huey pointed out that Texas school kids got their books for free, at a cost of 90 cents a pupil. So this was a key, familiar, actionable issue. Every family in the state could relate to it. 
The same housewives he'd sold snake oil to for years could see that he had a real plan, a tangible plan to ease the financial burden on them. None of this was ever properly costed, of course. Huey vaguely talked of taxing corporations more, streamlining government, but he was never specific. When Wiley Joe announced his platform, it merely had watered-down versions of Huey's own ideas with a promise never to raise taxes. But Huey wasn't especially interested in fiscal responsibility, and none of his supporters were necessarily concerned with how he was going to pay for all this either. He had a dreamlike vision for the people of Louisiana. A catchy new slogan as well. Every man a king, but no one wears a crown. This phrase was so beloved by Huey that he made it the title of his new autobiography. He used it constantly through his political career, and he even composed a song about it which Randy Newman recorded. Every man a king, every man a king, for you can be a millionaire. If there's something belonging to others, there's enough for all people to share. When it's sunny June and December too, or in the winter time or spring, there'll be peace without end, every neighbour a friend, and every man a king. You can actually go on YouTube and see Huey in 1935 singing this song, along with his songwriter, Castro Corazzo. I wouldn't say Huey had an amazing voice, and the song's more of an advertising jingle than anything else, but the sheer sense of the time you get from watching it is impressive. There's such an amazing contrast to now. I can't imagine a modern politician promoting their platform in a pop song that they sing. Maybe they should try it. The cornerstone of a Huey Long rally was his oratory. In this one campaign, he made as many as 600 speeches. Arms flailing, red-faced and passionate, he'd spit and denounce in long, run-on sentences. He was constantly on the move, letting loose the manic energy that seemed to propel him through his life. He had derogatory nicknames for his rivals. Riley Joe was Prince Riley. He attacked the establishment, saying, Our present state government has descended into a deplorable, misunderstood orgy of corporate dictatorship. His attacks weren't just verbal. In one infamous incident, he encountered Sanders, the man he denounced over the bridge, in a hotel lobby. The two descended into a physical fight, and while both of them claimed to have won afterwards, it was Huey who brandished part of Sanders' shirt that he'd torn off in the fight to a baying crowd. It was in the elevator that I gave him a good beating, Huey cried. But as well as robust attacks, he was also prone to populist melodrama, designed to promote an emotional reaction. He'd talk about the suffering of the poor. There's a story that Huey encouraged. There was a dinner held for him by a wealthy family. He was met with a vast array of cutlery and silver. If you've ever been at a formal dinner where people glare at you for using a soup spoon as a dessert spoon, you can probably picture the scene. Huey swept the knives and forks aside, crying, Bring me one knife and one fork, I don't know what to do with all this cutlery. It was a moment of apparent rash indiscretion and uncouth behaviour, but of course it was perfectly well calculated. Huey knew his supporters would spread the story and lap it up. At one campaign stop, he was by an oak tree that was featured in a famous poem. He said, quote, It is here, under this oak, where Evangeline waited for her lover, Gabriel, who never came. This oak is an immortal spot, made so by Longfellow's poem. But Evangeline is not the only one who waited here in disappointment. Where are the schools that you have waited for your children to have that have never come? Where are the roads and highways that you send your money to build that are no nearer now than ever before? Where are the institutions to care for the sick and disabled? Evangeline wept bitter tears in her disappointment but it lasted for only one lifetime. Your tears in this country, around this oak, have lasted for generations. Give me the chance to dry the eyes of those who still weep here. But of course, Huey was not without his own political backers. His campaign finances, paid almost exclusively in cash so there would be no paper trail, came from a variety of sources. Robert S. Maestri, one of the wealthiest men in New Orleans, donated thousands of dollars to this campaign, and many more to Huey over the years. He had made his fortune with property in the Red Light District, and supplied most of the beds for New Orleans prostitutes, although he always vehemently denied this. Huey's secretary, Alice Lee Grosjean, was a close personal friend and confidant. She was tasked with carrying cash in bills hidden in her bosom, as Williams delicately writes. Despite what people who support Huey in glowing terms would have you believe, he was not immune to the machine politics of Louisiana. The same network of local sheriffs who corruptly controlled votes, local civic leaders who held sway in their communities and who'd back you in exchange for cushy jobs, and shady outside money, all this dominated Huey's campaign too. He was not an anti-corruption politician, despite what he said. He was not an anti-machine politician. 
Instead, Huey created his own machine. Williams describes Huey's machine as detaching rings and small groups from other machines, who were afraid that they'd lose their power and influence if they didn't throw their lot in with Huey's rising star. They came as subordinates, they had to come for their own self-preservation. Previous machines were a lot like gangs. They were bottom-up associations of figures with power and influence, who pooled their resources towards common goals and picked candidates who were loyal to them. But Huey's machine was top-down. The exact same species of swamp creature could be found in the long machine, but he chose them, and they owed their loyalty to personally to him. That was the difference, and it was a difference that would allow him to establish dictatorial control over the state of Louisiana in the coming years. There would be no debates amongst equals as to which candidate should be supported. Huey would dictate the candidate list. The media were perfectly happy to report the lurid and scintillating stories of Huey as the pro bono lawyer bravely fighting against big corporations. He had a flair for drama, and he knew exactly how to tailor his actions to make the best story for media consumption. Newspapers then were just as driven by what captured the public attention as BuzzFeed is today. But endorsing Huey for governor was a bridge too far for most of the newspapers. One of them, the Homer Courier, described Huey as a disgusting buffoon. Quote, A thousand people witnessed a cheap vaudeville performance. The chief actor long was uncouth in manner and speech, preaching demagoguery of such arrant type that almost every utterance was an affront to an intelligent audience. End quote. The New Orleans item railed against the promises that Huey couldn't keep, saying that he was pledging himself to cure the blind, deaf and deformed. Huey laughed off the media criticism by calling them dishonourable liars. Quote, One day you pick up the papers and see where I killed four priests. Another day I murdered twelve nuns, and the next day I poisoned four hundred babies. I don't have time to answer all of them. End quote. He used new media that allowed him to talk to his followers directly, one of the earliest candidates to use radio broadcasts to appeal to the voters and broadcast his speeches. The hysteria on both sides likely didn't have too much of an impact on the race. As in all polarising times, people decide where they stand and then inevitably shuffle further and further towards that side. The middle ground? Well, it's eaten up by the political fire. This time, on election day, it didn't rain. If you're anything like me, you're sad enough that you stay up on election nights to watch the results come in live. Of course, in 1928, you couldn't do this on TV. You had to rely on verbal reports and hearsay. Initially, the anti-long camps might have been cheerful. The results from New Orleans came in first, and despite Huey's attempts to curry favour with the political machines in the city, he came in third, a long way behind the establishment candidates. He dismissively noted in his autobiography that the Ewing support had counted for little. It took until much later at night and in the early morning for the rural parish votes to be counted. Huey's heartland in the north of Louisiana showed up to support him, just as they had four years ago. But this time, it was matched by gains in the rural south and Catholic French parishes. Huey's deal-making and his support of Senator Rancel in the intervening years had paid off. They had delivered enough of the rural parish votes to bypass the New Orleans political machine for the first time in decades. Politics was being reshaped by this election. The traditional divide between North and South had turned into a rural-urban divide, a prolong and anti-long divide. New Orleans was no longer the centre of political gravity, a must-win city. Huey won 126,842 votes. Riley Joe polled 81,747, while the incumbent Governor Simpson got 80,326. Since no candidate had an overall majority, the usual procedure was for a runoff election, but Huey headed this off at the pass. He went on a wild hunt for Governor Wilson, hoping for his endorsement. It's rumoured that the alcoholic governor was so difficult to find because, depressed at his showing, he'd indulged in a drinking bout and disappeared. All the while, he was hemorrhaging supporters to Huey. Personal loyalty counted for little. They just wanted to be on the side that was winning. When Huey found Simpson, presumably hungover and huddled in some dingy hotel room somewhere, the ex-governor knew that the events were only turning the situation to Huey's advantage. Utterly defeated, in exchange for a cushy job in the long administration, he withdrew his candidacy and endorsed Huey. Later on, Riley Joe Wilson met with his supporters. Facing a long campaign with real momentum, and the prospect of having to raise thousands of dollars for a renewed runoff campaign, the old regulars and Wilson conceded to the inevitable. Huey Long had won the first round of the election by a greater margin than any previous candidate. 
he was going to be the next governor of Louisiana. In the drunken party that went on well into the night to celebrate victory, he was jubilant. You stick with me, boys, he said. We're only just getting started. Thank you for listening to Autocracy Now. You can email us at autocracynowoutlook.com, follow us on Twitter at Autocracy Now, like our page on Facebook, please leave a rating, review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher, donate to the show, that way I don't have to streak in the middle of a football match with the logo painted on my back. No one wants to see that. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. Next time, we'll see Huey become the governor, and how the establishment reacts to the election of this demagogue. At first, the machine politicians and the wealthy vested interests of Louisiana. They might have thought they could control Long like any other politician. However, it soon became clear that he had the will and the desire to steamroll anything in his path, whether it was political opponents or the law of the land. The anti-Long forces soon realised that they had to try to eliminate him from politics altogether. We'll see how they do next episode. Until then, be kind to each other. Our theme music is The Spirit of Russian Love by Zenadia Trokai, and you can find her stuff at costat.bandcamp.com. That's K-O-S-T-A.bandcamp.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode.